Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, where we have conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always, your host, bringing it to you. Thanks for joining. This week on the show, we found a kindred spirit, if you will. And what I mean by that, many of you know this podcast was born out of confusion. John and I, no idea what we wanted to do with our lives. Took a extended hiatus from work. And out of it, we said, let's talk to some smart people. Maybe they can give us the keys to the kingdom. And in some way, they did. We both have jobs we love now. Well, that might be considered our jump story. Our guest this week is Mike Lewis, and he is founder and CEO of When to Jump a global community dedicated to exploring the fundamental question so many of us think about. When is the right time to go do what you really want to be doing? So as you can imagine, like I said, a kindred spirit. In this When to Jump community, Mike has created a place where people from all walks of life come and tell their story of when they jumped into the thing they wanted to be doing. As part of this community, he's created conversations, Facebook groups. He has a brand new book coming out called When to Jump. And he also has a fairly new but incredible podcast called When to Jump, which is actually how we became aware of Mike. So in this episode, you kind of get it all. We're going to hear a little bit about Mike's jump story, which of course started in the large cesspool of life that is corporate America. I kind of say that in jest. I mean, You'll see when we get into the episode. All the way to the courts of professional squash. Yep, you heard that right. Professional squash. And now to creating one of the premier communities based on the idea of doing what you want to do. And of course, we talk about what are the fundamentals of jumping? How to do it? What is the jump curve, as Mike explains, and much more. We really think you'll enjoy this one. If you do, let us know. We're at Smart People Pod on Twitter, and you can find us, our contact information, and the newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Last but not least, technically, this is the last episode of 2017. If you think about the release schedule, the next episode should come out on the night of the first into the second, where most people get it. However, John and I have a special episode up our sleeve. But you got to be subscribed to the podcast in order to get it. It's going to be our fun end-of-year podcast, but we're doing it in a style we have never done before. 
So be sure to subscribe to Smart People Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this episode as we talk to Mike Lewis about when to jump. Enjoy. Mike, first, I want to say thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. You know, we were just talking prior to, but you are anxiously awaiting a package. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, it's funny. You've caught me at a, at a good time or, or an, uh, an, an anxious time. <laughs> uh, five years after sketching a cover page to what is now uh, a book due out very soon, uh, the, the shipment of the first finished copies of the actual hardcover book are due in at any minute, only because I've missed the last two days of their shipment in any minute. So I know this is my last shot to get them. <laughs> oh, you've <laughs> now that's funny. I didn't know you'd missed them previously. How do you miss shipments of your like big, your, your big thing? It's a real tease because the first day, I mean, I guess I'm really just coming up with excuses at this point. I should have just been home. But the first day, I, you know, I work from home and then I, um, I took, I, I, I like bounced really quickly to a meeting I had actually at Airbnb and they have a great cafeteria. So I was getting there early and I missed it. And then yesterday I was coming back down, back to San Francisco from, from Palo Alto area and I was down there early and I got back probably 10 minutes after they came. So we are in an elusive chase for these early books. Ah, if you don't mind me asking, what were you doing at Airbnb? We know, and we can get into this, but when I started this When to Jump community, mm-hmm. uh, kind of somewhat bizarrely, the first brand we collaborated with was Airbnb. It, it turns out that, you know, one in four hosts from, from what they've told me, uh, use the money they make hosting to change careers. And 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 take a jump. And so uh, we did a, a really neat collaboration uh, in the end of 2016 at their global member conference. We had two or 3,000 people who were Airbnb global hosts and guests in the audience. And I basically ran through kind of a, a keynote, but then also at the end, we did an engagement piece where we said, you know, what's your jump for 2017 it was. And it was just fascinating to hear what everyone had to say, just all different types of jumps. Um, and and we ended up hearing from like six or 700 people within 30 minutes after wow. the uh, program ended. Wow. So they, they found that really cool. We might get to do more, more neat things with them around that just because there's such a um, it's, it's such a centering point for the community. You know, people, as I'm sure you know, use Airbnb and, and it, it changes their life. You know, that extra income, a few hundred bucks here, a couple thousand bucks there kind of frees people up to, to have the life they want. That's a great partnership for you, for your message, for them. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that Airbnb brings people together, and that's what we do in, in our own way. But we thrive with kind of connecting dots like that. You know, mm-hmm. who would have known a, a host in Germany and a traveler from Pakistan could find a common love for baking, you know, and, <laughs> and they both are looking to take jumps to do that. So it's very, very cool. Yeah, I've, I've been really stoked to get to work with them. There's two things I really want to talk about. One is, first of all, this partnership you created. And as I was learning more about you and your podcast and what you do, it seems like you're really good at this community idea. And John and I will be the first to admit we're not that good. We like love podcasting, love emailing with people, but we've been continually talking about how do we keep growing it. And so the idea of community building and getting your message out, but more so for the sake of others, I feel like is a strength of yours. Has that always been something you've 
owned or knew how to do? Um, you know, I don't know if it's, if I'm particularly good at it, I appreciate that you think I am. I, I really just like bringing people together. You know, I grew up in a family that was really big. I'm the youngest of six kids. We moved a few times. I think I always was, was used to and accustomed to, uh, you know, taking, um, an idea and sharing it among friends or bringing people together around a kitchen table or, uh, figuring out what to, you know, game to play on the playground and, and, and getting people together for pickup basketball. And I, I kind of just found something that for me was a joy, which was bringing people together around things I cared about, whether it's food or a specific topic or an extracurricular, you know, and, and as I got later, it was a sports team in college. And then, you know, I, obviously working with entrepreneurs, you work a lot with communities, which I was doing at Bain. And then, you know, I, I always, I think, had a flair for wanting to make my own community. And and when to jump just kind of happened. And, and when it the spark lit, I remember speaking to a woman in January of 13. She was just, uh, you know, describing to me her jump from Wall Street to the Olympic level of cycling. And when I hung up with her, I was like, wouldn't it be cool to bring all these different folks that I've been chatting with about job and life changes and all this stuff? Couldn't we bring them all together around this idea of knowing when to jump? And so I think my love for communities because kind of, you know, emboldened by this conversation I had. And, and then I took it from there. It sounds like it was born out of your want to jump. And, and people listening will resonate with that. That's where this podcast came from. That's where so much creativity in the world comes from. I have a quote actually hanging next to me that says, the heart knows no questions. The mind knows no answers. And I feel oh, that's like, nice. yeah, I feel like the, the idea of jumping is something people feel as opposed to think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I always actually start the story off by saying is that by no means did I go into to saying, I'm going to leave Bain Capital and start a community and a global platform and, and get to do all these things. Like that was never the case. It really came out of a personal struggle, which was wrestling with a specific idea, not knowing the answer, and then reaching out to others for help. And out of that, things started to evolve, but it really came first from my own decision to say, okay, what am I going to do about this thing I'm wrestling and, and how do I, how do I solve it? Let's get back to, you were working at Bain Capital, right? Kind of big corporate, great job. Why did you work there? Oh, that's a great question. It was my first job out of school. Well, backing up even more, I was using eBay as a reselling tool for my mom's old clothes and then our neighbor's old clothes as like an eighth grader. And then got into internet um, startup stuff and got into, um, you know, launching uh, at the time as an internet education company in high school. And so I'd always had this entrepreneurial streak. And, uh, you know, for me, it was like, okay, where can I where can I work with people to make really big ideas come to life? And for those first two instances, whether it's eBay, which was not a huge idea, or the internet company, which was slightly bigger, we raised money, we brought in a team, all this. I loved that that concept of, of putting something in motion. And when those things ultimately, you know, evolved and I, I didn't really, you know, strike out with a lot of success on the internet company and I was in college, I realized, you know, I have so much more to learn. And it was a really humbling experience. And I said, where can I learn a lot? Mm -hmm. And the obvious answer was, you know, at a venture capital firm. If you can get into one of these firms, you go out and you meet hundreds of different, you know, different entrepreneurs, you analyze business models, you think about what it takes to be successful, you know, my job at Bain on paper was everything I could have wanted. It was really, really cool. It was a fun job. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I spent every day thinking about big, big, you know, 
um, trends and technologies and people with huge ideas. And then, you know, every year, a couple of them, we would, we would choose to back and, uh, you know, invest 15, $20 million into their idea. So it was, it was very neat. Um, but I think what I, what I realized was that there was, you know, um, there was a lot of other things I also wanted to do. And so, uh, you know, that, that we can talk about, but what got me to Bain was certainly the idea that I could learn so much from, from being around so many smart people. I, I like this because we took similar at that juncture paths, like right out of school, take the, the big job. But I feel like there was actually different experiences. And what I'm wondering is, was any part of your job, you know, taking this at, at Bain, driven by a monetary incentive and or an ego thing? Like, I want to work at the best place I feel I can. You know, the money piece was indirect, I would say. Um you know, I had parents who pushed a lot to get, you know, myself and my other siblings to college. They had invested a lot in us, as most parents do. And so I certainly felt like I needed to put my head down and repay them. Maybe not monetarily, but certainly like I, I think there was something to be said with saying, I'm, and I'm sure people listening can relate to this, you to do something because you're like, you know what? X and Y will be super proud of me and, and be thrilled to tell their friends at the dinner party or at the, the year end potluck at work, you know, oh, my son is, you know, at Bain Capital now. And I think knowing how much they sacrificed to get me through school and to put, you know, a lot really into that, it made it clear that I had, you know, I, for me, I felt like I had a debt to repay, even if, if it wasn't a tangible one. I was very fortunate. I didn't need to take out loans for school. And, uh, but I still felt I was, I was beholden to, to others. And I think to your other point about, you know, ego, yeah, I think that, you know, and I mentioned this in the book, our society is very good at creating carrots on sticks and, and the next thing, then the next thing. I mean, that's why we have a huge <laughs> spending issue and consumerism and materialism has kind of taken over is that there's always something else you can have. And even though jobs weren't material on, on paper, they were, you know, they were things that you could you could say, this is, this is how smart I am. Cause I get to go to this job, you know, and I don't think Bain Capital really was that I, I interned at Goldman Sachs the year before that certainly had more of a cachet in my mind because I'd never had an internship. So I just aimed really big and, and it, it somehow worked out. But, um, I do think that in the back of my mind, it was still the thing I should be doing because I knew it was legit on paper. You said you actually kind of liked what you were doing. So oh, I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't hear too often in the guise of jumping. Most of the time, people that jump, I find, don't like what they're doing. Yeah, I think that there's a lot going on. Uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't quote me. But, I mean, you can, but um, I would say I think job satisfaction was at its highest in 2016, and it was like 51%. So, you know, you're still looking at a workforce in the United States that almost by a majority, if not one in two, uh, which is pretty significant <laughs> to say, you know, you know, most folks or half of the population, are, you know, is not happy going to work. I don't think that when to jump is about saying, if you're unhappy, go do this. It's actually the opposite. It's to say, if you really, you know, are passionate about something, if there's something in your head that you're thinking about and you just can't let it go and there's something you've always wanted to do, then then go do it, you know, and, and, and our community and the book and all this stuff, it actually has very little to do with, um, you know, saying wake up tomorrow and do it. It's actually to show that it's not going to be pretty to describe the, 
the give and take, the sacrifice, the ugliness, but then, but also ultimately saying at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be worth it. So I think knowing those things are all really important. I love that. I actually read a post that you wrote and it was the five things that, that if you're going to jump and one of them was like build a savings account and another one was kind of do it on the side. And that's when I knew your message was legit, at least in my mind, because the best advice I ever heard a guest on our show actually said, build a bridge rather than jump off the cliff because it's too scary these days. There's too much at risk where we have debt, we have families, we have things. It's really hard to jump off the cliff. Yeah. And and you don't need to. I mean, I think that that's where a lot of our pop culture and, and social media stuff goes wrong is that it inspires you to make a quick fix on your life. And that's dangerous. Do you think that everyone wants to jump in some capacity? I think that as humans, there's something fundamental to this question of what should I be doing? So yes, I do think everyone wants to jump in some capacity, but a jump I define in a lot of different ways. You know, jump can be a lifestyle jump. It can be a professional jump. It can be um, a personal jump, you know, around your family and, and, and how to be a better husband or, or wife. So I think people do want to jump, but I don't think it's, you know, uh, it's necessarily all, you know, break the bank move to Bali, live the life you've always wanted, say, screw it, give it all up. You know, like that's, that seems like it's, it's not always for everyone and it shouldn't be. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by one of our favorite sponsors, Casper Mattresses. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-did-they-do-that sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. The best part is, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. So listen up. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com smart and using smart at checkout. Again, that's casper.com smart and use offer code smart at checkout for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. Your sole focus isn't career jumps? I think that largely we see career jumps in our community, but mm-hmm. we accompany we accompany a lot of different jumps as well. Gotcha. I wouldn't limit it to just that. Okay. That, that's a, a unique way of looking at it because I was wondering if, have you ever heard anyone who wanted to jump into a corporate job? Yeah, it actually is funny you say that because um, <laughs> there's a woman in the book who we featured who her jump uh, was from an actress to start an internet company, an internet education company. Now, she used actually, funny enough, um, uh, Airbnb to fundraise uh, and, and really finance her her jump into starting an internet education company. But she says in her story, she said, you know, a lot of people think of jumping is saying screw it to the corporate gig and going into a creative pursuit. And she was going the opposite. Well, that I could see. Do you find a common thread is people don't want to 
work for other people, right? Or be a cog in a machine. I can understand I want to go start a big business, but I feel like it's it'd be a stretch to say, you know what? I want to go work for a big business and be an entry level or a low level manager or something like that. Well, I actually think I would I would disagree because I think a lot of people want to have meaning in their job. I think they want to feel like they're valued, that they have purpose, et cetera. I have a friend who's leaving a startup to go to a large corporate company. Mm. She can't wait for that structure and to be a cog in a wheel huh. where she has her benefits. She's got things laid out. There's a sense of security there. So I wouldn't say that everyone would want to leave that because there's obviously people that, uh, you know, buck that trend. They might not be in the minor, you know, in the majority, they might not be like me and you, but I think there's something to be said there. I think there is um, a part of everyone that wants to be valued, that, that want to feel like the stuff they do is useful, that they are appreciated, you know, all of those types of things. That's a great example. And I'm glad you said that because one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is that everyone's different. And what I mean by that is I always kind of looked at people and said, wait, why, why do they want to do that? Right. Why do they want to climb the corporate ladder? Why do they want to work 60 hours a week? And then I would pit myself against them. And I would say, I must be a failure. I must be uh, not a hard worker, but it, it took a while to realize, no, we're just wired differently. So in your example, somebody that wants to go work, big corporation, have the stability security. That's great. That's their thing. Yeah, totally. I think we have a tendency, any of us, to impose our own will and personality and all that other stuff on other people. And that's just that's just how it goes. But it's not always the case. And it's not a bad thing at all. It's just, you know, just how it works sometimes. Yeah. So your jump from from Bain into this community, actually, there was a there was something in the middle I, I read. <laughs> I'm laughing because as I read it, it was my dream is to leave corporate America and play professional squash. Yeah. <laughs> How that is, is that part of it? Even a dream. I mean, I love it. I think it's amazing. But where did that come from? Yeah, that is a random one. Um, I was born on the East Coast. My dad picked up squash, uh, you know, as a um, as a as a kind of later in life adult. He was a naval surgeon in Newport, Rhode Island, and. He always thought that that was something that he would, you know, get to, to pursue, but he, he got into it late. And so for me growing up, I, I was I was introduced to the game pretty early. I got a real love for it early. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't until I think I was 14 years old and a professional player was coming through town and he, uh, you know, he stayed with our family. I think there was probably, you know, I want to say at most five courts at our squash club. We were the only official squash club within probably a hundred miles of where I lived. And here was this player at my dinner table telling me stories of playing the squash tour on mountains in Brazil and cities in Asia. And I just felt like, geez, you know what? At some point I'm going to go do that. And as you know, life gets busy and I ended up, you know, playing the tour or not playing tour, dreaming of playing the tour, but going to college, playing in college, you know, all this stuff getting internships, working at Goldman, playing, you know, working at Bain. I had my squash racket the whole time, but no one was going to give me that time to just play and travel the world and be on that mountaintop in Brazil like the guy that you know, was at my dinner table when I was 14. So time goes by, and 10 years later, uh, you know, Bain was great and on paper was the right place, but again, that little voice in my head wouldn't go away. And I sat there, and I knew that 
you know, A, nothing was going to keep it from staying around. It was going to be on my left shoulder, you know, whispering to me for the next 30 or 40 years. And B, no one was going to tell me when to listen to it. No one was going to be like, hey, here's the time. Go in and tell your boss it's July 7th. It's time to leave. I wish someone was going to do that, but it wasn't like there's an internship break in the real world, as you know. So I was kind of stuck. And when to jump and the first story I collected and the sketch I made of a cover page, it just came out of trying to find evidence that I wasn't crazy for doing it. So did you did you do it? So it took me about 18 months. I joined the tour part time. I saved up money. I pitched sponsors. I gave away logo space on my jersey. I was playing before work. I was training at lunch and after work. I was taking night flights to Chicago and midnight trains to New York and playing in competitions, coming back for work the next day. Yeah, I was collecting stories while I was doing this. And over time, I said, you know what? I'm ready. And I, I, I did it. I jumped in May of, of tw- at the end of May of 2014. Did you play squash, though? on the tour? Like, prof- I don't even know what professional squash looks like. Oh, well, you are in the rare. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Most people do not know what that uh, looks like. But I, uh, I can tell you, do you know the Pro Tennis Tour? Sure. It's a lot like the Pro Tennis Tour, but it's like the ugly stepsister in the sense that no one really knows of it. You don't make any money really doing it. Mm. But if you go on the website, the, the P, I believe it's psaworldtour.com for all those wondering, yeah. you can literally look up tournaments that are around the world. There's, I have friends of mine playing in Iran right now. You can play in Dallas, Texas to Santiago, Chile. And so that's what drew me to, to playing professionally was this idea that not only could I play a sport I loved, but I could use it as a way to see the world. And because these tournaments on the smaller side of things, you know, we had our version of Wimbledon's, but on the other side of the spectrum was these $5,000, 32 guys split 32 ways, making 30, 50 bucks a match, uh, competitions in tiny little towns. It was like Bull Durham, you know, and awesome. And in each of these tournaments, they would host you with, with, with families that would want to put you up just like our family hosted that squash player when I was growing up. So it just felt like something I needed, I had to do. Yeah. That's awesome. And then out of that came this, your, your new endeavor, when to jump. Yeah. And I never would have started when to jump if I didn't have the first jump being made into squash originally, because the jump into squash made me comfortable with the unknown. Right. You know, I had three months planned ish, maybe two months. And I went for nearly two years, 18 months, 16 or 18 months, 200,000 miles, nearly 50 countries, all the continents. It was incredible. And every night I was staying with other people. So I got very comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then when that was wrapping up, you know, my friend sadly had passed away uh, who I'd worked with. And we were up, that was probably a month into the tour when it's, when that happened. And he had expected this book that I sketched and showed to him a year earlier to be a book. And so I promised myself I'd see it through for him. And I, I messaged his brother and sister. I told him, can I, can I finish this and, you know, dedicate it to Corey. And when I was finishing the squash tour, I just, you know, had been lucky to connect with folks like, you know, Michael Lewis, the finance author, uh, the second baseman for the Cubs who left the Cubs to go to college. All these different people that had great jumps. And then from there, things picked up a bit from, you know, going forward and, and, and a new jump was born. One of the things you mentioned is, you know, nobody kind of gives you the, the time or the answer on when to jump or what to do. But then you built a community around 
telling the stories of people who did that. So what do you think the benefit is of knowing other people's stories about jumping? I think it's just permission, right? It's just being like, wow, you know, I'm not alone in this. And I think that's super important is to feel like, you know, there are other people that have had similar crossroads, forks in the roads, whatever roads that you can imagine. And they live to tell about taking the road less traveled. And there's a great book called um, The Power of One by Bryce Courtney. Have you heard of it? I haven't, actually. Oh, okay. So it's a memoir. Well, it's not a memoir. It's a fictional novel around a young boy growing up in uh, kind of world, well, it was right around World War II as, as World War II is raging on in South Africa. And he talks, he basically wants to be the welterweight champion of the world. And he has this dream and he's able to pursue it because someone else had come from his neighborhood to become a, a world champion boxer. Something he had one example of somebody else. It wasn't even his neighborhood, it was in the region. But the whole point is that when you have one person or one instance, you have you have the power of one. You have that example to 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 lead by or lead you by. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what the stories did for me was you know it gave me real life proof. Yeah, I mean when we started this show, it was similar context except we just because we had no idea what that jump was, right? So you were saying your community is much more based on if you have that burning passion, see if you can bring that to life. But what if you? You know what you're doing isn't that, but you're trying to figure it out. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I actually think that's super smart because a lot of people try to figure it all out and then you never jump. You know, there's um, there's a part of the, this framework to the jump curve that I put in the book, which is, you know, you have to let yourself get lucky. You have to put yourself in a position to be running into the right things at the right time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means taking a mini jump, a hop, like you, what you said you did, mm-hmm. you know, you... Um, you know, you really need to be able to not feel like everything is going to work out exactly to a T. You've planned it out for the next six years, et cetera, because those things just don't happen. You should have a good idea of why you're doing something. You don't want to be, you know, haphazard with it. Um, but at the end of the day, you got to jump. And there's some great stories in the book and elsewhere in our community of people who, you know, the jump didn't end up exactly as planned, but because they had prepared and been thoughtful that was good enough. You know, they, they, that, that got close enough, uh, to, to, to justifying doing it. And then what they discovered was, was way better than what they were doing if they had stayed still. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned the jump curve, which I wanted to ask you about, cause I know that's in your book. And again, the book is when to jump. If the job you have, isn't the life you want. Tell us a little bit about the jump curve. What is that? Yeah. You know, what was a, I think super surprising to me as I collected stories over the last five years was that there's actually a general you know, trend and set of patterns that you can trace through these disparate stories that on the surface have nothing in common. And so the jump curve is a really easy to digest, approachable, but still uh, you know, thoughtful and, and, and kind of planned out framework that has four phases that you can expect at any kind of juncture in uh, in your jump journey. So the first phase is listen to the little voice in your head. Uh, the second one is make a plan. The third one is let yourself be lucky, like I mentioned. And then the fourth phase is don't look back. And in each of the phases, we present case studies of all these different people from different backgrounds that relate to that theme. Um, I share my own you know, story as it relates to that piece. Um, and then we have takeaways and insights at the end so you can return to it at any point. Um, but I'm I'm a fundamental believer that everybody is is on the spectrum there. 
Man, I got goosebumps when you were talking about that. I was just reliving the last like 10 years of my life. That's a great jump curve. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Health IQ. Do you have life insurance or have you started thinking about life insurance? If so, check out Health IQ. Health IQ believes the best way to improve the health of the world is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. There's so many reasons to check out Health IQ. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, and these savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Like saving money by being a good driver, Health IQ gets you lower rates on life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. After all, physically active people have a 34% lower risk of all-cause mortality, 56% lower risk of heart disease, and 22% decrease in cancer mortality compared to people who remain inactive. Now that we've got your attention, here's what you've got to do. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com SPP or mention the promo code SPP when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Again, that's healthiq.com SPP to get your free quote. And now back to the episode. I appreciate that a lot. What made it stick out? The thing I really love and I know to be true is let yourself be lucky. Like everyone, so I'll go speak at colleges or groups, nonprofits about finding work you you love. I mean, it's a big topic of mine. And the number one thing I say is just build something that's yours. Build anything that's yours. Sure, it can be a podcast, but a book, a blog, uh, start painting, sell lemonade. I don't care because I think that's a way of connecting with others through value you add and things will come of that. And that's what I believe making your own luck is. And so I think that's just perfect. Yeah, that's a very cool way to put it that you had as well. And that's exactly right. So I can't wait to read the book, but it hasn't come out yet. No, January 9th. January 9th. Um, and it comes out worldwide. We have our podcast that obviously launched in late October, which is now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, got hopefully a lot, lot of legs to it. And I mean, to have yours go for seven years. That's aspirational. And we hope to be around in seven years. Um, but no, it's, it's great. We, we share stories and, and have conversations with well-known folks and everyday folks on the pod. It comes out every Tuesday. Um, you know, it's, unfortunately it was named to a, I think it was the top 10 business podcast chart for iTunes, mm-hmm. uh, recently. And, you know, it's been really interesting. You know, every, every guest brings a different perspective and the same is for the book. The book has 44 stories from every type of person from every background. So. Wow. Yeah, the podcast as well, which I've had a chance to listen to. And I, I like the stance of we're bringing on extraordinary people, but extraordinary in a different way. Because I think that's what our podcasts have in common, right? We don't always go after the the hottest topic, but it's people that still should be heard from, in my opinion. And I think you do something similar in this idea of jumping. It's who's done it? What's it sound like? Let's make it real world. What what kind of prompted the podcast and what do you what do you enjoy about it that's kind of nuanced? Yeah, you know, I think um I, I, the podcast, first of all, to answer your your first part of your question, it, it came out of the very beginning of this project where I would literally 
reach out to people and just start talking to them. And over time, I started to take notes, and then I would ask for permission. I'd record their their the conversation. I would then transcribe it and edit it, and then those conversations came into the book. But the most original form of this content was was by voice and, and audio. And so, you know, a lot of folks would say, "Oh, you should do this. You should do that." You know, you should you know make sure to uh, you know get, make a, a podcast at some point, this and that. And I always kind of thought that'd be that'd be nice. You know, that'd be actually a lot easier than the book because yes. the podcast was just happening in real time. Um, and then the book was so you know I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to really you know I took I, I had a, I felt like there was a large onus on me to really you know, put down exactly the type of, um, you know, persona and character and all of that stuff that I was getting from the, the audio transcription and trying to, 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 you know, mold that and finesse that into, uh, you know, the, the book stories. And I think they, they got there. We have an amazing editor who deserves all the credit in the book, but the podcast was kind of a no brainer if we ever could get it together. And then, Fortunately, you know, I signed a, a book deal with a publisher called Macmillan and they have a podcast division and they signed me to a deal where we could just get it out. And I think to answer your other question on what's the, the nuance, I'd say the nuance is that we're all human. You know, our first guest was Sheryl Sandberg. Our next was Ariana Huffington. But our guest this past week was a yoga instructor. And mm-hmm. I think there's not any point in which there's a drop in content or a quality of content rather and I think that speaks to the fact that we're talking about something that everybody thinks about. Did you happen? Did your book arrive? No, I was uh, just looking at it. Oh, it hasn't come yet. I was waiting for that moment. Um, I wanted to ask you any stories that stick out for you because stories translate so well via audio. And I'm wondering if there's one or a couple that you just can't let go of in your journey. Well, that's like picking your kids, you know, in favorites. <laughs> I mean, I, it's hard, but. I think one story that I go back to only because it really was sentimental because it, it, it stuck with me from my squash tour jump to my when to jump jump is that there was a, uh, I think it was like, you know, June of 14, I was about a, a week into my trip. I was in New Zealand and I, I, I was lost. I was in Queenstown trying to find where I was staying for the night. And I asked this woman my age for directions and we got to talking and she said, oh, you got to meet my dad. And we started to, you know, spend more time together. I got to know the family. The father had grown up in Venezuela, had left Venezuela for about, you know, a year to backpack through Europe on kind of his only money before he came back home and, and, and kind of started his life in Venezuela. And in his last days, tried to get into the uh, Jacques Cousteau exhibit at the Museum of Oceanography in Monaco. And he goes up to get into the, uh, into the exhibit, and he had slept on the bench the night before. He had two days left till he, you know, was to fly home, and he was 10 francs short to get in. And he turns around to leave, can't get in, he's super bummed. He had idolized Cousteau growing up. He had watched him on all the videos and just thought this guy, you know, truly was living a dream. And as he turns to leave, he sees a woman across the street who had, uh, you know, had a car that was broken down, had car, you know, car issues. And, uh, he knew, you know, his way around a car pretty well. He, He went over, he helped her out. And at the end she insisted that he, you know, take some, some cash. And he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. You know, she does it anyway. She stuffs him 10 francs, goes back in, goes to the museum, 
leaves the museum as the last one that night and says, I'm going to come back here someday and work for Cousteau. Fast forward 10 years or five, seven years, finishes university, studies aquaculture. They needed an aquaculturist at the museum. His friends applied for him. Talk about letting yourself be lucky. (laughs) He gets an interview and then boom, ripped jeans, long hair, 20 something years old. And he's working for Cousteau in Monaco, Mm -hmm. meets an American, gets married. They talk about traveling around the world, but life gets busy. He works with Cousteau and becomes his right hand man. Ultimately, he rises up to become the National Aquarium Director for the United Kingdom. He designs and makes aquariums around the world, especially in the UK. He becomes a field producer for Blue Planet and, and Planet Earth. And all the while, he's still thinking about when he's going to go sail around the world. So his jump was to take his family. They had three kids. He and his wife got into a pretty small sailboat and took off. And he quit his job. And for three years, they sailed around the world until... I ran into them about a year after they landed in, in Queenstown, New Zealand. I feel like that's you putting yourself in place to be able to hear that story and then tell it as well. Yeah, it was it's a, it was just surreal. I mean, I wouldn't have heard that if I didn't ask for directions on my own quest around the world, I guess. But um, it was it was so interesting because here was a guy at the top of his game and, and doing what you know he thought he was supposed to be doing, and he left it all. Right. And the reason he said he left it all is because he said, you know what? I'm going to have a better story from this. I know I can get a job again <laughs> later. And he could. Man, you know what? I might even title this episode that is that something along the lines of that will give me a better story. One of the guiding thoughts I've had on my life is what will give me a better story? And And I don't mean it in like, so I can tell people or blah, blah, blah. It's just you got one chance. Might as well be interesting. You know what I mean? And so the first job I got after I kind of quit corporate and took thought about it was at a golf course making nine bucks an hour because I thought I wanted to be a club pro. Now, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. And and that's a whole nother story. And we can talk about it. But the whole point being is when I'm 80, 85, 90, 60, however long I live, I want to be able to say, yeah, I tried to do it. You know, Either, either I wasn't too good or I didn't have the whatever, but at least I tried. Yeah, I mean, it's just living It's living with no regrets. Yeah, the idea of a story is great. I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but... I love when questions start. <laughs> I, I struggle with asking the tough questions, but this idea of jumping, this idea of changing careers, finding what you love, it's so common. It's everywhere. And it's become a cliche often. So I have a few questions around that. How do you feel about that statement alone? That the idea of finding work you love, I consider to be a cliche these days. Um, and I mean, feel free to totally say you're an idiot, but I'm no, just curious. I don't, I actually, I, I don't actually think that that's wrong. I think that it is a cliche in some ways because I think what people, you know, what I find to be a cliche is do what you love and it'll have, you know, it'll work out tomorrow. I would say that's a cliche to me because it's like, that never happens. That's not real life. You know, I would say the, the way it's not a cliche, I would say is do what you think is meaningful, do things that you, you have a passion for, but know that it's going to be really, really hard and sucky Mm. and still worth doing. I I actually do like that. Let's highlight the suck. Yeah. My, I believe Cheryl Samory says lean into the suck. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is when you were thinking about this community, this idea, did you ever think, you know what, 
there's 10 other people, 100 other people doing this, talking about it. I'm just adding noise to the mix. Did that ever come across your brain? Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to be just another... I, I, you know, I really, I, I don't describe myself as a self-help person or, um, a guru or someone who knows all the answers and nor would I want to be classified as that. But I, I completely agree. I think the world has, you know, the world already has enough great Instagram accounts to, to inspire people or, um, you know, really cool motivational speakers that can inspire people. I think what, what the world doesn't have a lot of is, is places where, we can expose the realities of, of following those people's advice and chasing your dream, but, but showing the, you know, what I call the 2000 or 10,000 unsexy steps behind Mm -hmm. what it looks like. And I think that that's actually really, you know, a valuable thing to stand for is to be able to say, here is what it looks like to do what you love. And it's really hard and it's not always fun, but it's worth doing. And I think, in that way, if we can stay there, you know, that's a really good place to be in because I think, you know, that's what I was looking for. You know, that night in January of 13 in Boston when I Googled when to chase your dreams. And if I'd found that type of community, I wouldn't have started when to jump. But that's that's what I felt was missing. And that's where we, we or I sought out to to fill a void. You're like the anti-magazine cover. Yeah. That's, that's how yeah. I see it, right? Because so I travel all the time. That's for work. And so I'm always in airport bookstores and they, they are really good at making magazines seem incredible, but it's just a, an extension of the Instagram account, the, you know, 60 second clip on TV. It's, it's a, it's an extension of the end result and none of the suck. And you, you're kind of talking about all of it. Yeah. It's like, I, another way to put it is I put it you know, I go for the, the, the middle ground, you know, the Mm. stuff that's in the middle. Good for you. I love that. Well, Mike, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being on the show. I think the work you're putting into the world is much needed and valuable. And and thanks for kind of telling the real story. (laughs) So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love your guys' show. and, And the fact you guys have been able to keep on keeping on for seven years is, is aspirational. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right, Mike. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike Lewis. Mike's book, When to Jump, If the Job You Have Isn't the Life You Want, is available on January 9th via Amazon. And if you're going to purchase his book through Amazon, please do it through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Every purchase you make going through that link comes at no extra cost to you and it greatly supports the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you download the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And as always, you can head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com Check out all the old episodes and sign up for the newsletter. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up. We might even have something special coming out in the next few weeks. So make sure you stay tuned and we will see you all next episode. Next episode.